Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Take your Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Esther. And Esther is found one book left of the book of Psalms. Probably most of you enjoy a good story, one filled with drama, pathos, and a good ending. Well, this story that we're reading today is not fiction. It is non-fiction, which is really better than any kind of fictional story we might read, although those are based in some way on things that happen in real time in real people's lives. And this story is huge. The story of Esther. Esther is the star of the story, and come to find out, her name means star. This would have been her Persian name. Her given name is a Hebrew. A descendant of Abraham was Hadassah, and she was an orphan. We don't know how her parents died. We do know that she was taken in by her first cousin, Mordecai, who became her de facto father, and he took good care of her. The best thing he did for her was to set an example of what a sold-out follower of God is. He risked his life. This story is primarily about Esther, but Mordecai comes in a close second. If it were not for God's influence in her life through him, she never would have risen to the occasion that we see her rising to in the fourth chapter and following chapters. The story is set in the fifth century B.C., in the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was Susa. The monarch was a monarch whose kingdom went from India, consider this, India, get a picture in your mind, India, all the way to Ethiopia. 20 satraps, meaning 20 major divisions, 127 provinces, each ruled by a prince. This man was incredibly powerful. Ahasuerus is the way he is presented to us in most of our translations, including the one that I'm using today. Xerxes was his other name. Xerxes would be more of a title as a, opposed to a given name, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was a generous man. The book opens with a description of how for one half year he puts on display all of his glory, all of the things which had been accomplished during his reign. And then for seven days, he threw a banquet. It was a banquet where no one was required to drink wine, but most of the people drank a lot of it. When you drink a lot of wine, sometimes things don't work the way you would want them to work. What happened was he called in his beautiful wife Vashti, the queen, she was having a simultaneous banquet for the spouses and other concubines of this king and their associates, but she denied his wish. Now, she had a will, didn't she? A woman who stood up to the most powerful man in the world. 
It cost her, not her head, but it cost her her place. We don't know exactly what happened to her. She never was seen probably in the palace again. She was exiled somewhere. But then there was a big search for a replacement, and the person who ended up being chosen was Esther, the star of the story. And Esther was really babied to get ready to be part of a review of the most beautiful women. Imagine 127 provinces. Talk about a beauty contest. They were all there. And this is what she experienced for a year. Half the year, she was given the privilege of being spiced up with perfumes and also with oils and myrrh and all kinds of cosmetics before the year itself was over and she was chosen to be the queen. She was a beautiful woman. Vashti, her predecessor was beautiful and this man had an eye for beautiful women and as God would have it, Esther was blessed with beauty too because God had a plan for Esther. That's what this message is really all about, the plan of God for one woman's life. If I were to write a title over this, and it was not very creative, quite frankly, I don't have that capacity, but I would say God uses one woman to save an entire nation, the nation of the Jewish people in this massive, massive kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians ruled by Xerxes. And she was a dear, dear young lady. And we're going to read about an encounter that she had with her first cousin who became her adoptive father, Mordecai. So look at chapter 4. I wish we had time to look at the entire book. We don't. Mordecai plays a good supporting role for sure in this story. And we are introduced to him right away in verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Now, what had been done that led to such behavior on his part? There was a man named Haman who hated the Jews. He hated them so much that he put together a plan that he persuaded the king to implement and give his signature to so that it could come to pass. Haman himself had risen to the highest place of any of the princes of the provinces. He was the number two person in the kingdom in terms of authority. He still was under the authority of the king, but he was large and in charge. And when he would walk through the city after he was raised to this highest position, people were under orders to bow before him, to stop whatever they were doing, bow low and humble themselves before him. When he came to the king's gate, where Mordecai, the father of this dear woman Esther, Mordecai would come regularly and he would come for the purpose of checking on his daughter. How are you doing? How is she doing? Take a message to her. Bring a message back to me. I want to know how she's doing. A good father, even though she was no longer in his household, he cared so much for her, very protective of her. 
Well, when he did not bow down to Haman, Haman got so angry. And that anger came not just from inside him. It had been something he had always known. After all, he was a descendant of Amalek who had a descendant named Agag, and Agag was hacked to death by Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 15, hacked to death. And from that point forward, the few descendants that remained of Agag, the Amalekite, they were taught to hate the Jews. And he knew that Mordecai was a Jew. And he wanted to make sure that all the Jews were wiped out all over that great, great Medo-Persian Empire. So a decree was issued. The date was set. It took nine months to get the word to all the leaders of that great empire. What happened was Mordecai was mourning, and here was a courageous man. You see where this young lady found her role model, really, in him. She tried to quieten him down. Let's read a little further, verse 2. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. He defied protocol. He was not trying to hide who he was. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. Why was she so disturbed? Because she loved her father Mordecai, and she knew what he was facing. And she was in anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him. But he did not accept them. He said, no, I'm going to stand my ground. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Let me stop just a moment. Seventy-five talents of silver. Actually, that's not correct. Ten thousand talents, each weighing seventy-five pounds, times sixteen ounces. The math, it's like ten billion dollars. That's a big price to have on your head and to be paid for you. Verse 8 he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and plead with him for the people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. And all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for men, any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. In her case, she be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. This would apply to her too, even though she was beloved. He loved her, this king. But whenever something was put in writing in the law of the Medes and Persians, it could not be revoked. And so she knew 
that it would be discovered that she too was a Jew and she would be under the law too and had her life taken from her regardless of the fact that she was a queen. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days, she said. They related the message to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. This story is set against the backdrop of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God indicates that he is the king of kings. We read from Psalm 115, our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He's the king of kings. He's the ruler of all kings. And he is one who does exactly what he wants to do. He has the right to because of his position as God and king of kings, lord of lords, but also he had the right to, the will and the right to do these things both were in his power. There's another side to the sovereignty of God. The word is not found in the Bible, at least in most translations, it's the word providence. Providence is a word which is derived from two Latin words, one pro, which means forward, and video, or video, video, we would say, to see forward. Have you ever said to someone when they ask you to do something, I'll see to it? Have you ever said something like that? What did you mean? It meant that I will see that it gets done. I will do it. You can count on me. I'll do it. What we can know about our God is that he's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he promised and will he not fulfill it? Our God does exactly what he says he will do. He sees and then he acts based upon what he sees on behalf of his children. In Genesis 22, that poignant story of uh, the father of the Hebrew people, Abraham. God tells him to take his son, his only son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah and there to go alone with just him and take him to that pinnacle of that mount and to sacrifice him as a sacrifice to God. Abraham, unbelievable. He had waited over a hundred years by this time to see this boy come to maturity. Probably he was about 115 by now. This boy was an adolescent. He could have easily overpowered his father if he wanted to, but he was an obedient child. As he raised the knife, the Bible says, Jehovah Jireh provided a substitute, a ram whose horns were caught in the thicket, and that animal became the sacrifice. The word Jehovah Jireh, we often call it the Lord our provider. That's true to a degree, but basically means the Lord who sees, God sees. In his providence, God saw this whole story and he knew exactly what his people needed. He knew exactly how he was going to get what they needed to them in the way of help. And he saw this dear woman, Esther, 
And he saw the struggle she had in deciding, am I going to do what my father suggests that I do? Or am I going to let someone else do it? That's a big question. And this, is a, this message is a message for everyone here who knows Jesus Christ. Everyone. And if you don't know Christ, it could become your message. That your life can count not just for time, but forever. Provided you yield yourself to the Lord. God uses one woman to save a nation. And in order for that to happen, she had to choose against herself in order that she could be in league with God and in step with the Spirit of God. We see in this matter of providence, there are two main things I want to note about the life of providence. It is not a painless life. It is often incredibly difficult. When God calls a man or a woman to follow him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great martyr of the Christian faith in World War II Germany, when God bids a man or a woman to come follow him, he bids that person to come and die. To die to oneself to begin with so that you can be ready to die physically. So it's a painful life. We see this in this chapter where when the news of Mordecai's behavior reached this dear Esther and he was reluctant. In fact, he outright refused to do what she suggested. She writhed in anguish. Job says this in Job 14.1, the man who suffered arguably the most of any human being except for Jesus. He says, how frail is man, how few his days, and how full of trouble. You know what I mean? There are people here, most people in this room have some sort of pain they're dealing with. To many, it's just a quiet, under-the-radar kind of pain. Some people's pain is writ large. You can't miss it. But all of us know that the pain that the Lord in, allows us to in, go under is something that is under his providence. Think about Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers. Think about the years he lived in exile as a slave. And think about how that must have irked him at times, left him depressed at times. And this pain that comes our way, sometimes it's physical. We wonder sometimes, do we not, why good people have trouble in their lives physically? Why would that happen to her? Why would God let that happen to him? Why is this child born in a state of deformity? Why, Lord? Well, some of those questions will remain unanswered. But let me give you an example of a man who was born with no arms and no legs. His name is Nick Vujicic, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that last name correctly, but I'm doing a good job trying to. But what we want to know is this young man, born without any limbs, his parents refused to let him use that as an excuse for learning how to 
thrive, not just survive in life. He grew into a young man. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. He wondered if he would ever have the joy of being a married man and have his own children. God gave him a wonderful wife. They have four children from their union. Amazing. And he is a man who, wherever he goes, people crowd to hear him and to see him speak. He's even a star in a movie called The Butterfly Circus. It only lasts about 30 minutes. You can get it for free. And it's not, I'm getting not even kickback on that. It's a great story. It's a great story. Life is painful for him. It could have been, but he didn't let it define him, did he? He saw purpose in it. God used his pain. Sometimes our pain is emotional. If we were open to hymn number 224 and then also look at 664, we would find two hymns which were written by a man named William Cowper. Cowper lived in the 18th century. He was described by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. If you're remembering anything about Britain, Great Britain, English literature, you'll know that name. He was one of the romantic poets. And this is what he said about Cowper as a poet. He called him the greatest modern poet. Now, that was in the 18th century. The greatest modern poet. This man struggled desperately with depression. In fact, he struggled so desperately that he found himself in an institutionalized situation for insane people. But the Lord met him in that insane asylum, believe it or not. He came to the Lord. His melancholy temperament is what allowed him to produce such magnificent work in the field of poetry. So he still had that melancholy bent. Back up before he came to Christ, before he was institutionalized, he hired a coachman where he lived in London to take him to the Thames River. And the Thames was flowing very freely. It was a time when there was a lot of rainfall. And the coachman stopped when he said to stop. He got out of the coach. He went to the side of that coach looking over into the river. And all of a sudden, the coachman knew what he was doing. So he ran out and grabbed him and took him back in, put him inside, drove him home. Not to be outdone, what Cowper did, he went into his house and took some poison and it didn't work. He decided he'd try another means of taking his life. He fell on his sword, and the handle broke. And then, not, finally, he tried to hang himself. A neighbor heard him struggling, came in, took him down. Thank God he didn't die before he became a Christian to follow Jesus and to be used mightily. He became a a partner of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. They comprised a hymnal, the only hymnal it was called. He contributed 67 hymns. Have you ever heard this phrase? I wondered where it came from, and in preparing the message, I discovered it. God, God moves in mysterious ways his mercies to perform. Have you ever heard that? That's one of the two hymns which is in our hymnal, by the way. What do you think he was alluding to God moves in mysterious ways his mercies to perform. Undoubtedly, he was thinking about that 
day when he tried to kill himself four different ways and God didn't let it happen. Providence intervened. But he had pain even going further. He was used in the abolitionist movement in Great Britain. He joined up with William Wilberforce and others to abolish slavery. His hymn about the plight of the black man was used by Martin Luther King on more than one occasion when Dr. King was seeking equality for African Americans and other people who are marginalized in our country. William Cowper was a man who suffered, but he was mightily used of God. Nick Vujicic is a man who has struggled physically and had ridicule heaped upon him at times, undoubtedly. But he's seen a purpose for his life. Life is painful. And we know that God uses our pain. In fact, the Bible says that it's a gift for us to have trouble because it's that which causes us to go back and renew our commitment to the Lord, to really trust in Him with all our heart in such situations. Life is painful under the providence of God. It's not a cakewalk. But life is meant to be purposeful. In Isaiah, I believe it's 46.10, the Bible says this. God speaks. He says, My counsel will stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. His purpose, all of it, will be accomplished, he says. What we need to understand is that the sovereignty of God could be real cold. God has a right and a will to do whatever he wants. That's Islam's God, Allah. Our God is a personal God who has a plan for us. And by the way, that plan was written in that God's book, every aspect of it, before there was even one day of it lived by you and me. This shows you just how purposeful his providence is. He sees ahead. He knows the end from the beginning. All we know is the beginning. We only know this far in our lives, right? We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next week, but what we do know is we have a God who causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, which happens to be to be conformed to his son, Jesus Christ, who happened to learn obedience through what he suffered. This is our God. He is a sovereign God. He's a providential God. Thank you that both of those things are characteristic of him. What is his purpose for us? Simply put, and this is true of all of us, that we glorify him, that we are used by him. How do we glorify him? Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. I think that's comprehensive. And there's no endeavor that you and I engage in that does not, if it's under the will of God, have the capacity to glorify the Lord not the least of which is sharing the good news of Jesus with other people. I think this passage where Mordecai speaks to his daughter and he says, look again at it in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Esther. 
He says, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I don't know where you are in your life, but there's coming a time, if it hasn't already arrived, and if it's arrived once, it's probably going to come again, where you'll have an appointment that's been designed by God for you to rise up. Listen to what Winston Churchill said about this. There comes a special moment in everyone's life a moment for which that person was born. That special opportunity when he seizes it will fulfill his mission, a mission for which he is uniquely qualified. Read Psalm 139 to verify that last statement. Uniquely qualified. In that moment, he or she finds greatness. It is his finest or her finest hour. I want to encourage you today. I tell you, I had a conversation yesterday with a man. 60 years old. This man was somewhat despondent. I could tell it. He was saying, here I am at 60. I'm an old man. I said, bro, you're a young man. <laughs> oh, for the day when I was 60 years old again. But he was in despair. Look, if you know the Lord, you have an appointment. I don't know how it will play out for you, but I do know that it will play out to the glory of God if you know what it is. And don't worry where you are. Esther had no idea she was going to be placed in this situation, did she? I don't think so. But there she was, and she responded properly. She had a choice. But if she hadn't, the God says... Ruth, Mordecai, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of his own. He doesn't use the word God. In fact, the word God doesn't even appear in the book. But references to the law that Mordecai adhered to, which would be the Ten Commandments and the things written by Moses and Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy. So here we see how God says, hey, you have an opportunity. If, if you're dragging your feet about sharing Jesus with somebody and picking other things to do besides that in your life as you go, make disciples, looking for opportunities in every encounter for the possibility of sharing Christ with somebody. If you're selling for anything less than that, don't think God won't send somebody else. Here's what I believe. I know it's true. God offers this to all of us. This is something we have in addition to the fact that we are to glorify God, he wants us all to share Christ. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. I'm trying to liberate you. This will lift you up. This will lift some of the gloom and doom that you deal with because you'll get your mind off yourself on the Lord and you'll share Christ. And lo and behold, people's lives will be changed irrevocably through you and through me. But if we choose not to do what God wants us to do, the result is going to be that we'll leave this world unfulfilled and we will not have fully 
accomplish what God has given us to do. By this is my Father glorified. Remember, that's our purpose. By this is my Father glorified, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is the Lord's will for us. He wants this for us. There's nothing like it, I must tell you. There's nothing like it. It's the most delightful experience life affords. We can draw from this passage that failing to speak out for God is perilous. It's risky business. And also, to fail to speak out for God, if that is true, is perilous, then there's really no risk involved in witnessing for Christ, even if it violates common sense. You, nothing to be lost in sharing Christ with somebody. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. God's going to use you. You were born for such a time as this. All of us, we've been born into this world, not accidentally. Forget about it. We're born on purpose. You're no accident. The whole idea of evolution is a lie of the devil in terms of it suggesting that we just happened. The human race evolved from some mucky kind of substance in some pond somewhere on earth. We were born to be used by the Lord. I heard recently about a woman named Ava Kaufman. She was diagnosed with a disease, dermatomyositis. I got it right, I think. It's, it's a disease that attacks the muscles and finally destroys the person because it goes to the heart. Before it was discovered what her problem was, was she went to doctor after doctor. No one could properly diagnose her. She had been a professional dancer. She was the picture of fitness. And she was told, you have to have a heart transplant if you hope to live. It didn't look good for her, but lo and behold, the Lord gave her some donor that matched her blood type. And she was in an induced coma for two months after having had the transplant. During that time, she was sort of in and out, sort of in a surreal world. And she had a picture in her mind of her being in two large hands. And when she awoke and thought about that after two months in the coma, she thought, the Lord was trying to communicate to me that he still had a plan for me. And I am in his hands. And I want to be used by him. And what she did, as soon as she could start doing it, two more months in the hospital, she was hatching her plan, and her plan was to develop a ministry called Ava's Heart. And that was designed to help people who, like she, had had heart transplants, and to help them to navigate the tough waters of aftercare. You might have something God's calling you to do for the Lord. Not for yourself. This is important to understand. Not to us, not to us. Oh God, be the glory. But to you and you alone. And God chooses to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, doesn't he? He takes the weak things of the world to confound the wise as well. Just because you have a handicap, remember, it's not a painless life that is the life that's providential. But God uses us, not in spite of our pain, but because of it, really, when you get right down to it, 
That's another message altogether. But we have this great opportunity to share Christ with others. Some of you have a heart for the unborn. We have people in our church who are associated with a pro-life clinic, and they serve the Lord that way. There are many more people we need to help in that kind of ministry. Praying for the people who are dealing with an unwanted pregnancy, praying that they'll come to a place where they can hear someone describe the sonogram that has been taken and show this life inside their womb, and they would choose to keep their baby. We have opportunities elsewhere with indigent people, people who are hurting, people that need encouragement, people who need the word of the Lord to them in different ways. Lots of opportunities. People who feel a leading to be involved in the political arena. We have a, a woman who's here today who is, for the second time, putting herself in a position to serve the Lord through the political process. That's a valid way, too. We're always ambassadors for Christ, if we know Jesus. Always looking to represent Him first and then ourselves secondly, regardless of what we do. And this is a wonderful thing that God has given us as we seek Him. I want to conclude with a few suggestions for us. How can we take this truth home? I encourage you to read the entire book of Esther. It's a delightful story. Ends well for Mordecai, for Esther, and all the Jewish people. Read it. It's fascinating. First of all, I would say, if you have children or grandchildren, or both, pray for an Esther. Pray for a Mordecai. Pray for people who understand the providence of God, that those children will grow up with an uncanny, uncanny understanding of who God is and a desire to know Him and to serve Him and to share Him. Pray for that. Make that part of your life going forward. Secondly, be still. Be still and know that I am God. It's what God says. Let go and know that I am God. One of the translators translates that Psalm 46.10. Just wait. You've got to learn to wait. But when God speaks, move. Be confident in God that it's God who has gifted you, God who is showing you what you're to do and to follow the Lord. Confident that what he said to the Judean people when he said, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Believe that's for you. And it is for you if you know him. He's got a great plan for you and for me, all of us. So be confident in the Lord. Then be bold. Now, boldness is not rashness or rudeness. Boldness is just stepping out in faith like Esther did. When she went in to the king, for all she knew, it was her last day because she had heard of people who lost their heads and she was going to vouch for her own people, the Jews. She was going there. She didn't know what his response would be, but he held the golden scepter out to her, which was a sign he would listen. He listened and then Lo and behold, God arranged for the 
elevation of Mordecai, the death of Haman on the gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai on 75 feet above ground, and he died there, and all of his sons died as a result by order of the king. We need to be men and women who believe what the Bible says when it says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is his. Notice heart is singular. One heart at a time. One heart, your heart, my heart. Then those who have that heart will come together and be used more forcefully by God. In Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter in the 30th verse, following this train of thought, God says, I have searched, I have searched all Judah, and I cannot find one person who can stand in the gap between me and them. Could you be that person? One person, if one person in this room took to heart this message, it would be radical in terms of its impact and glorifying to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this great story. It is your story, really. We praise you for who you are. We ask your forgiveness, Lord, for getting off in the weeds somewhere, ignoring sharing the gospel, ignoring finding your will for our lives. Thank you that you're eager to share it with us. Just help us to be hungry for it and to wait on you and to act when you show it to us in dependence upon you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.